Welcome to the latest installment of the York College Sport Management and Media Alumni Podcast Series. I'm Dr. Mike Mudrick, Associate Professor in the program, and today's podcast is going to be a little bit different. Instead of interviewing an alum, we will be showcasing the career of one of the program's biggest contributors, mentors, advocates, you name it. That would be Dr. Susan Kleindens, who this May will be retiring after 40 years at York College. In this session, Sue is going to chronicle her career from her passion for athletic training, which led her to college athletics in the first place and enabled her to be a trailblazer in the field. Prior to arriving to York in 1982 as an athletic trainer and eventually transitioning to a faculty position. We hope that you enjoy. All right, everyone, a little bit of a different setup for today's podcast. And this podcast warranted doing something a little bit different. So instead of doing a traditional alumni podcast with our department, uh, we're going to close out the academic year uh, with a podcast with, with a very special person for the sport management program. And so we're here with Dr. Susan Kleindienst, who, as many of you may be aware, is retiring from this institution after 40 wonderful years of service. We'll be chronicling the career of Dr. Kleindienst today. Glad to be joined by fellow sport management faculty members, Dr. Molly Souter and Dr. Donna Grove as well. And so it'll be a, a three-person interview with our, our fantastic interviewee, Susan Kleindienst. Sue, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Honored to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to get started. For our audience who may not know much about you as an individual, you know, they've probably been exposed to you as, as the faculty member, as the advisor, as the athletic trainer, so many hats you've worn, which we're going to talk about today. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So you've become a Pennsylvanian over the years, but you are not from this area, correct? I'm not from the York area. I was born in Erie, Pennsylvania, okay. but my parents uh, moved from there pretty quickly to down to Baltimore. Okay. So that's where I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Went to college at Salisbury State College at that time and was a physical education major with playing two sports, I was a field hockey and lacrosse player and did some athletic training for them. Uh, when I left there, I ha had a degree in teaching for physical education and sort of decided that in my senior year that I really didn't like teaching elementary or high school. So um, I didn't, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and my head athletic trainer had why don't you go into grad school for athletic training? And I was like, now I'm sick of school, I don't want to do that. So. It was one of those things where I basically took a year off. I, I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina and started in the JCPenney's management program. So get into retail and that was very interesting, but I really found like in probably February of, of that year after school that, that I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. I really miss athletic training, I miss college. I really want to be in college. Okay. So. Um, through some networking, I applied to several different institutions, but was offered a um, graduate assistantship at Eastern Kentucky University, which filled both areas because I could teach physical education, but I also was assigned to the men's athletic training room there as a graduate assistant. So Donna was gonna was gonna yeah. ask you some of those questions. Yeah. So, so I guess I'm just curious with. Um, being at Salisbury and then being at York for so many years and Salisbury being an, uh, a conference rival, how did you feel as an athletic trainer when you were here and um, how did you manage those emotions initially? Well, I tend to be a person who is really the fan of where I'm working. So while I loved my years at, at Salisbury, I was a Spartan when I came here. And that it's easy to do that transition because working one-on-one -on -one with athletes, it's, you have a connection that how could you not be their ultimate fan? Which actually was a problem for me as an athletic trainer. It was more that I had to remember that I couldn't be so much of a fan, that, you know, that I needed to be focused on, on you know, the mechanism of injuries and all those types of things. But you, you can't help but doing that. And so I didn't really find that hard. And, and actually probably tried to hide it more than, than, you know, to try to make our athletes not feel like I was, you know, more, more a seagull than I was a Spartan. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the things that, that that institution has done and how it's grown, but I bleed green. 
<laughs> Great. You and you alluded to this already, but what really sealed the deal that you were going to go into athletic training? So you know, the the physical ed teaching didn't work out, but what was it about athletic training that you decided you know this is where my passion is and this is where I want to take my career? Well, I, for a long time I thought I wanted to be a doc, and I really liked the hands-on, and I really liked the interpersonal relationships with the athletes when I was a student athletic trainer at Salisbury. And I, I only realize this now, or in more my adult years as a professional, but I had a special kind of time at Salisbury because that was, Title IX was coming about, but I was sort of ignorant of that because we didn't have those issues that I was aware of when I was a student athletic trainer. We worked with men's sports, you know, we, we, we had separate, there wasn't a main athletic training room at the time because the athletic training room was in the men's locker room. So they did things for the female athletic trainers, but we often would have like, you know, okay, we do treatments over the female side and male, but I never felt like you can't be a part of, of the total athletic program down there. I remembered that, I, I liked that, and, I, and it felt good to be helping. I'm, I like to help people. I like to do that kind of stuff. The part that I always had a problem with when I was student teaching was it was really hard for me to manage the students. I liked teaching the skills. I liked doing all that. But like, you know, these elementary school kids were almost as big as I was and they didn't want to listen. And I didn't like the kinds of ways that they were being made to listen. It just didn't fit my, what I thought, but I didn't have any other classroom control mechanisms at that time because we weren't really focused on that. We were focused on skills and, you know, you may, if somebody didn't behave, they sat on the sidelines or something like that. And that, it just didn't fit right for me. And then high school, that was probably even worse in many ways. So I just, it wasn't that I didn't like teaching the skills and doing the physical education and, and helping people with their health. It was more about I didn't have the tools to, to be an effective teacher in that way. And so it gave me sort of a, it sort of turned me off a little bit. But I knew I liked teaching, but it just, what they, I knew those weren't the two areas I needed to be. And I think it was being in the business world, which I was pretty successful at, but uh, as far as, you know, learning the skills and applying them at pennies, but I, it just wasn't people oriented. And that's just where I've always been. And I missed the what I call the medical side of it and, and being able to combine that with education. So that really was the flip. It was like, okay, these things are not, which is why I buy into the program that we have in sport management because they get experience right from the beginning. And I think education programs do that now. We didn't have that. So everything was compacted into a, your senior year. So once you embarked on that area of athletic training, you said that you didn't really realize kind of how fortunate you were at Salisbury to, to have all the opportunities and to kind of see things that were maybe not the norm at that time. I, I think a lot of people might not know about kind of how revolutionary it was when you came out of your grad program and started working as an athletic trainer. You were working with football, you were at Lebanon Valley College. Can you talk to us a little bit about that era and what was that like? And, and also the fact that, you know, athletic training is a huge job. But then on top of that, you were also working in athletic communications as well. So we would just really love to hear a little bit about that. I think I have to say a little bit about grad school. So grad school, I went to Eastern Kentucky, which essentially is a Southern school. And I did not realize, you know, when, when I was offered the graduate assistantship, it was really about you know, you're in the men's athletic training room as a graduate assistant. I'm like, okay, fine. But when I stepped on campus, I did not realize that there was a women's half of the campus and there was a men's half of the campus. They had a women's athletic department and a men's athletic department. And the fact that I was in the men's athletic training room actually was causing quite a stir. From the women's side, it was, why is she allowed to be in the men's athletic training room? The head athletic trainer for women was not, and our girls are not allowed to be over there. Our women are not. And the men is the football coaches having a coronary because there's a girl, which is what they always call me, in the athletic training room and she's going to be a distraction to his players. And I didn't know that's what I was going into, but found out pretty quickly. So that environment where, the, where Title IX was coming in, the NATA was saying, you're Eastern Kentucky, you're gonna lose your academic accreditation to have this as a major, 
if you don't start giving the women on your campus and their football experience. So I was sort of their guinea pig. And so, you know, I'm not going to go into all of that at this point, but what that did is that really opened up this, this my mind about, well, there's no way when I go and have my own program that I'm ever going to make a distinction between male and female. The job that I got at, at I my job search is everything that we probably would say is not traditional, but at that time we didn't have social media and all of the things online. So I actually sent out a couple hundred resumes mm-hmm. to every school that I could possibly think of that might potentially have needed a need for an athletic trainer. And also, I, so when I got the call for the Lebanon Valley job to come and interview, I was in Philadelphia for the NATA convention. And they had called my parents and my mom said, well, she's actually in Philadelphia. And she was able to get hold of me and say, they want to see you tomorrow if you can. So they gave me a a number and you know I called them and they said would you come over I wasn't their first choice when um, when I went and I interviewed and and there were a couple things I was really upfront with just like I was here at your college was one you know the men's and women's teams were going to be treated equally and fairly and that I needed every coach to buy into the fact that there needed to be an athletic trainer and we needed to work in partnership Luckily, the athletic director was a big believer of that. So I left there probably feeling like I probably wasn't going to get this job because I had all these coaches sitting around, like sort of like glaring at me. The women were happy, but the, the men weren't necessarily. But the lucky thing was that the athletic director was also the football coach, so that really did help. And I wasn't, I, I you know, didn't hear anything. Uh, NETA convention is in June went through June, went through July, didn't have a job, and then all of a sudden I got a call, and we'd like you to come for an on-campus interview. I said, okay, so I left North Carolina, went up to Anvil, and did a further, like a second on-campus interview kind of thing, where I got to meet president, deans, all those kinds of people. You know, they said, we we would like you, we would like you to be the athletic trainer here, and we're willing to do the kinds of things that you want, but you can't just be the athletic trainer. So you're going to need to be the sports information director too. For me, that was like, I don't know anything about that. You want me to write? I don't know anything about all these different things. And But luckily, they had a really good head uh, communications director, their PR director. And he um, was a wonderful man who just took me under his wing. And I mean, in the, at that time, we were like hand cutting out pictures and putting them on paper and taping them down and photocopying and photocopying <laughs> and set, take, running them down to the printer to do posters and all kinds of things. So it was, you know, not what it is today at all and writing press releases and things. But, um, that, you know, that time was the first year I was there was a big adjustment for everybody because we would have 6 a.m. treatments in the morning for seriously injured students because they had they had to be at school and their classes by eight o'clock and they had to eat breakfast and all that so we had six to seven then they went off and did their thing that that was a rude awakening um i actually did the butcher the butcher number thing i created a hundred numbers and put them (laughs) on a nail and people picked a number as they came in and they learned that if they wanted to get treatment early they needed to come early and and um, and if they did not do their treatment, they didn't practice that day. And that that in today's time probably would not fly. But at that time, it did wasn't a popular thing. But it made coaches make sure that their students were there. It was the only way that I could, as a woman, put some structure into something and also have some authority, because it was the first full time athletic trainer they had, and I was a woman. And I never felt like that was a big deal for them there. Um, it, it, it did maybe just because of my personality. Like I never felt like I was discriminated against. I think it was more about, oh, you mean we have to do these things? But after that first year, everyone bought into it. It was so easy my second year. How did you, so you mentioned like what your morning looked like. How did you physically get those two jobs done? Because I think in college athletics, they're known for being some of the jobs that take, they are the most time intensive and 
you know, you don't really get to much control over your schedule at all, right? It's you right. just got to get it done. So, so you you did treatments from like six to eight or whenever yeah. it would be, yeah. and then so normally, then um, did, normally treatments were like happen? six to seven, and or a little bit after, and then I got to eat meals on campus, so I'd go to breakfast, and then that I would put on my sports information director hat, and that's when I would have to, you know, write press releases or you know figure out what I want to do um, you know for the week the focus was on football honestly certainly little things went and so that meant that Saturday you know Saturday after games that's what you were focused on sports information and calling into the TV and radio and newspapers your little box scores and all that kind of thing but you know I would do so I'd spend mornings the sports information probably a lot of times over in the public relations office then you know have some lunch and then come back and open up the athletic training room which usually opened between about 12 30 one o'clock every day and we would go until normally my night ended at 10 if we weren't at if we were not traveling uh, because the way that I worked it is I wanted student athletes to eat dinner and we would make, like students had night classes, they would get their first treatments after practice and then they could go on and eat and go to their night class. And then the students that didn't, then I'd say go home and shower, go eat and then come back for your treatment. And so that, that took time. And by the time you would clean up, I didn't have any students, I didn't have any help, it was me. You know, wow. so we so had, you had four, no staff? We had no staff and there was no help. I, I started recruiting some students, there were a couple students who like acted as volunteers and I was able to teach them like how to do some taping and at least help me do some basic treatments and write things down and stuff like that. But um, really it was me. The first year was very labor intensive and very long hours and I lived in my athletic training room and I lived right across the street. My first year I lived right across the street. Um, my second year I lived on the campus because I didn't make very much money. So the, the day was eat, sleep, drink, etc. athletic training and sports information. Um, and, and I loved it. I loved the institution. It was 900 students. You knew students well beyond the, the um, athletes. And the athletes made up a lot of the students. But you, I ate in the cafeteria. I had students. My second semester there, I was able to start a prevention uh, and care of athletic injuries class. And so they had PT programs, so a lot of their PT students and our athletes would take that, and that was really neat. So the, I was able to get some students to help me, but that first semester, that first year I was there, I mean, it was, it was exciting because they were hurt all the time, and they weren't little hurts. <laughs> they were big-time injuries that... You know, I was glad that I had my emergency training, that I went through a home emergency management program at, um, at Eastern Kentucky as part of our athletic training. Um, I'm grateful for that because we had tons of emergencies that first year um, on the field and in the stands and in the press box. And it was, it was a mess. But, it w but for somebody that was, um, you know, essentially, let's see, I was 23 going into that. Um, that was a big deal. I mean, and I was happy, but it, there was no other life. It was work. Within that, though, you're you're amongst one of the first female athletic trainers to work football. Is that correct? Yeah, at that time, because again, that was Title IX time. When I talked to my head athletic trainer at Eastern about the job and my options at the time, he was like, "You need to take that job, no matter what it pays." He said, because you will be one of 10 women in the country at any level that is going to be head athletic trainer with football. And he said, and that's going to help you in the future, whatever you decide to do. And, and it was because women were, were not being given that opportunity to at any level. And there certainly weren't very many athletic trainers at all at that time in the high schools. That was like unheard of. So this was a small Division three program, but the fact that they were willing to give me that opportunity was wonderful. And um, again, you know, I didn't think anything like that was a big deal. I just didn't, 
I think I lived in a fairy tale land. I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. I, you know, they're they're bringing me here because I know my stuff is what that little arrogant twenty three year old was thinking. You know, not so much that. And I think for them it really was we needed somebody, and we have football starting in a couple of weeks, and we got to move, and this person's ready. And and the only reason I know that that stat was there is my athletic trainer was on the board of directors for the NATA, and he was the incoming. NATA president. So he knew the stats. He knew what was happening out there. And, you know, while he might have, you know, it might have been that maybe there were a few more, but he basically there were very few that were being given that opportunity. They were on the women's side. You know, women athletic trainers with women's sports all over the place, but not on men's sports. Okay. So you left LVC after two years. Mm-hmm. That's when you arrived here at your college. Yes, I did. I, um, um, LVC was in a real financial trouble at that time, and they were struggling, and I was making very little money. And I'm not about money, but it was hard to live. My second year, I actually asked to move on campus, and I became a third job, and the third job was called Wagner House um, um, Liaison or something like that. It was where it was a big house that they had, and people would come on campus, like faculty members or people who were doing talks on campus or whatever, and they would stay there. And so my job was to sort of keep the house together. I mean, I didn't have to clean it or anything we had, but you know, to make sure sheets were changed and, and rooms were open and people got keys and all that. It wasn't a whole lot, but it gave me free room and board mm-hmm. on campus, um, which was I needed because it was really hard to pay bills with what I was making. It just, there were some things happening I wasn't real happy with. So I was looking, but I wasn't looking real hard. But my head athletic trainer from undergrad school called me and said, hey, I have a friend at your college, which is down the road from you, and they're looking for an athletic trainer. Can I give them your name? I was like, sure, I'm willing to do that. So that sort of opened the door for me to come down for an interview. Well, so I guess with that, this was August 1982. We talk with the students at this time. It, it's funny when, when we talk in class. Like like Scott guys will come and talk to our students, and he'll talk about just how different things were back then with athletics on campus compared to what the students are programmed to experience now. I, I guess just for folks who don't really know, how would you paint us a picture of what the York College campus was back in the early '80s, like that? You know, and and specifically also from an athletic standpoint. Um. Well, we were prehistoric compared to where we are now. Um, you know, really, they wanted an athletic trainer, um, but they weren't prepared for an athletic trainer. And the pres- the president, who we became very good friends, but the day that they hired me and I went to his office, he said, I just want you to know, and I, and I love the guy, but I didn't know how to take this. He goes, I want you to know that I think you're a frill. But they tell me that this is something that athletics really needs to have. So I trust them that you will do that you will do what we need. So I didn't have to take that. I just went, you know, smiled and, and went on. But uh, it should have given me the indicator for the rest of the day, which is we don't have an athletic training room. We don't have a budget, but we will in the future. But so you tell us what you need now and we'll make sure you get it and then we'll let us show you the room that you're gonna be in. Well, the room that we're in was a laundry room that was about 12 feet by 15 feet. It had a washer and dryer. Donna knows this, <laughs> it was there when she was there. Washer and dryer, a old wood table and then um, and a sort of a bench thing against the wall. And my office was going to be there. You opened another door and there were 12 closets for teams to keep their supplies in. And there was an open floor and they put a desk in there and they ran a telephone line. And that was my <laughs> office. This is accurate, Donna? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and that's where we were and, and so the college certainly didn't have all of the sports that we have now, but um, we had we had a lot. I mean, you know, there was uh, it, it was plenty to keep me busy. We didn't have football, and I did miss that. I missed that. There's an adrenaline rush to to football. There is, 
but there were so many challenges to starting a new program and I loved that and that was and building the relationships and getting people to to buy into the need and and also provide the stats of like at the end of the year to be able to say look we cut your expenses down by this much because you didn't have to be sending every serious injury up to the emergency room was what they were doing. The, the Gladfelter Insurance was like jumping handsprings because they were so happy that, you know, their bills were going down so So you were much. not a frill. Yes, I, yes, and ended up being I was not a frill, which was nice. So, the, you know, so it was a simple time. It was. So you, you were in that role, role for 20 years, and, you know, I think we'd all agree that you were a key cog in the success of athletics during that time. It was actually 22 okay. as um, as the head, okay. and then um, I stayed on for a year just to help Nate with wrestling and lacrosse, just to try to take that off of his plate as he was establishing his program. And um, one thing that really stands out, you know, I talked to some of the former athletes, but one once told me, she always had your best interests in mind. She always supported us and would advocate strongly for us. And so how does that reflect how you went about doing your job? But again, about the relationships that you were able to build here, especially with the student athletes. You know, in order, in my mind, the way you had to have a successful program is you had to have buy-in with the athletes as a partner. And so I am sure there are plenty of athletes who couldn't stand me. You know, but I know there were a lot of athletes that really appreciated the approach of, look, you know, I understand that you want to play. And, you know, my, my talk to every team every semester was, look, we want to prevent. But the only way I can keep you from getting worse is you let me know as soon as you know. I don't care if you think it's a bruise or a hangnail or a blister. Let me know as soon as you get it and then we'll make it, you know, try to make it so it doesn't get worse. And so, and I would bring out my anatomy book that I still have, and I, we, you know, like, okay, let me show you where this is, and let's go through this. And so it was important. I, I think that was important. And then you did. People just didn't understand what an athletic trainer did, and, and you had to advocate. You had to advocate for everything, you know, field space and things being maintained and budget and all kinds of things. And um, you know, I know that I made a lot of mistakes as an athletic trainer, as a young professional, grow, you know, growing and learning and, and everything, but I do feel that the student athletes knew that I cared. And, and I did things back then that athletic trainers can't and don't do. I mean, you know, there would be athletes, um, I'd be up at the hospital at 2 a.m. in the morning with an athlete. I would, I had athletes that were ill you know, running fevers, they couldn't go home, and they would be at my house. Now, normally it would be a friend with them, but, you know, I mean, I would do that because they needed care for them. We don't have a, Lebanon Valley had a 24-7 nurse, you know, there, and we could put students over there. We didn't have that at your college. So I think students remember that that kind of thing, and they appreciate it, their parents appreciate it. I, you know, I've, I've taken students home to their parents, student athletes home to their parents when they were really hurt and needed to not be here at the, you know, at the college. So I, I think it's the relationships that student athletes remember. It certainly is what has made this be a really enjoyable experience for me. So obviously, and I don't want to fast forward too much, but 2006, you also, it, it kind of culminates in that you were inducted into the Athletics Hall of Fame here speaks for itself given all the contributions that you, you gave to athletics but how did that make you feel I mean obviously something you'd be proud of but you know, what was going through your mind when you get the word that, that you're going to be in the Hall of Fame here yeah I was shocked okay. I guess I just never I mean I was very appreciative and I had uh, taken a, a sabbatical the fall of 2005 and the Hall of Fame was in the spring of 2006 and so when it you know, I got notification while I was on sabbatical that this is what they had voted, and I I was very appreciative of it. I I did feel like there was some validation to the contribution of of what I tried to do during that time, both as a an athletic trainer and, and trying to create a really professional 
environment and program and and also just uh, you know the fact that alumni had written in and, and people had written in to support me that that would be so it meant a lot and and it was special it was special for me it's special for my family um, I was newly engaged and had uh, well no I guess at that time I actually was married but I was newly engaged when some of those students were were coming through right before then and you know had my stepchildren there at that time and and it meant a lot you know it it, it just meant a lot it was just special so you mentioned sabbatical, but we haven't mentioned, when did you start teaching at York? How did that, you know, you're, you're always doing these dual roles. You're doing SID and athletic training at, at, at LVC, but you also athletic trained and taught here at York College. How did that all unfold? Yeah. Well, um, when I came to York College, um, everybody was a teacher coach. So I was a teacher athletic trainer. So I was hired as a full-time physical educator with my, con my contractual duties were 50-50 which really was 90% athletic training in, in reality. But I had to teach, so I taught half of the teaching load that everybody else had taught. So they did it by contact hours. So um, contact hours is for every hour that you teach, you had to teach so many. So like, you know, Rich and Nina and Pat had to teach, um, you know, like 30 contact hours. And I taught like 15. So I taught like half. Of the amount because they realized that there was so much that I mean they got they got certain releases because of or toward those contracts contact hours because of their coaching but you know mine was written as a 15 credit and which was really nice um, I mean I taught all kinds of physical education classes when I was here and and um, because of my schedule I actually was the first one that taught Friday classes so we offered Friday physical education classes in that space because I couldn't always teach when they wanted me to. I, you know, the athletic training room, I had early morning, I had afternoon and evening. So that, that was one of the ways that I was accommodated. But yeah, so the teaching came right away. And then, there, you know, when in 1998, when the program, when sport management was conceptualized and, and started at a very basic level, there was always a plan that each one of us would teach a class or so in the major. We all knew we would have something. And I was teaching a couple times. I Prior to the 2006 transition, I was teaching like uh, sport and society. That was my class, right? And then when I was, I was fortunate that I was a faculty member because it allowed me to retire because if I wasn't I would have been leaving the institution if I had said I didn't want to be athletic trainer anymore so I was there was a need because there was this new program here and that allowed me to be able to trans you know transfer into like retiring from athletic training and going into teaching within the sport management program so thinking about that transition into the sport management program um, what made you confident that that, you know, that we could make a go of sport management at your college? So what was it like as the program was sort of being conceptualized and those first couple years that it was, you know, kind of came into existence? Sure. Well, at the time, you know, when they, when they did the feasibility study for the, the sport management program, there were very few programs other at the big, big universities. There were not a lot of small schools that had it. And the first director was um, Matt Robinson. And, you know, Matt had always been the, the fantastic networker. So he was able to bring in, at a, at a young age, he was able to bring in a, a lot of ideas and people connections that really, I think, sold me as a person who was still a physical educator and only teaching one class. Like, yeah, I, okay, I understand how this is going to be something valuable if people want to work in sport, and there's a lot of opportunity. So, um, you know, the buy-in, I think all of us said, yeah, we think that this is a good idea, but we really, I'll speak for myself, it really was not so sure what this would really look like until Matt came on campus. And, and he did a really good job of, 
of, you know, just sort of mentoring all of us about, you know, the possibilities and the kinds of things that, where this could go and why it was so important for your college to jump in on this. And there was some vision of, of where the future, you know, some people had an idea of where the future of your college would go. So, you know, it, it was nice it was nice to be able to have him on campus and to be able to do that. And then we got to go to NASM and we, you know, we, we got the, the NASB accreditation initially for as one of the first few smaller schools to get the, the accredit, that what they called accreditation at the time. And so the, the, I think for me, the whole idea was, yeah, this is a really viable, um, option and it's a niche that a lot of other places don't have and I'm a big believer in that is you know what do we how do we attract students we do it by something that other people aren't doing as much and so that's you know it was easy to have buy-in for a program like this. Cool. What were some of you kind of alluded to this when you said that Dr. Robinson was big into networking and really had met a lot of people that stayed a hallmark of the problem of the program over time what do you see as some other foundational pieces that right from the get-go needed to be in there and that have kind of endured through all these years? Sure. Practicum is the big hallmark. You know, making sure that students got that practical experience right away was important. It looks a lot different in today, much more professionalized, but um, the idea that students would be working with with teams and then as the Grumbacher came within the Grumbacher and so that was really important. Um, having, you know, being known to have a program of excellence was also important. Um, and then also in that classes should have experiential opportunities as far as different special projects or things like that were all, was also important. Cool. So in this time, you're also still at points as you're transitioning you're also serving as physical education coordinator. I'm just kind of laughing again about like all the hats, how do you make all that work? And especially given that you didn't really love working with elementary or high school kids, but I know what a passion you've had for physical education and to really invest in kind of the wellness of our students here. So I'm just wondering what your thought was as you took on a leadership role in that also and the impact that that's had. Sure. Well, you know, for a long time, the program was under Rich Oxane. So he, he really had such a passion for it. It was a sort of big shoes to step into because he was so invested into it, but he had decided that it was time to step down. And that, that was, it, it definitely did shift things. Now, what I haven't said before is that there were a couple years I was the women's coordinator for athletics here. So that was sort of like prior to having athletic directors or anything. And so I had gotten a little bit of that le- that kind of athletic leadership experience. It wasn't what I enjoyed, but I did it because there was a need for a bit. And so being the coordinator, what it did allow me to do is then really get with, we were starting to expand our our teaching. We have always run the program with the four physical educators that were full-time and then a bunch of adjuncts. And it was getting to the point as Nina and Rich were moving more toward getting, and Pat, toward retiring, that we were really looking at, you know, how do we expand to classes that students want in today's time? Maybe not so much as the traditional kinds of classes we were offering and what could we do and so there were some opportunities for me to uh, to hire some people who you know were more physical fitness or dance or uh, those kinds of related things that while we were doing we weren't doing to the extent like we couldn't offer as many sections and things like that but at that time physical education was mandatory for everybody so we started out when I first came here for a long time, it was four credits. Then it was reduced to two credits as a, that was a faculty senate vote. So we had decided we still want them to get a variety of experiences. So we went to half credit classes mm-hmm. and half semester. And so a lot of those things 
were things that I was inheriting and trying and also expanding on. And, and it was a, it, it, what it really, what I found I really needed to do was become very collaborative with the adjuncts. And, you know, obviously Nina, Rich, and Pat, they were, they were doing their things and they have an extreme passion for that. But the buy-in had to be because the writing was on the wall that once Nina, Rich, and Pat retired, that it was going to be me and adjuncts. So really had to be working with them to affirm how valuable they were and are and to really look at, you know, where do you see this going? What, what is it that you want to see us doing? And that was a really big challenge. You know, I, I was coordinator for a bit, and then it wasn't, and then it was. And so, you know, the, the consistency, though, has always been whoever. Whoever has been teaching, we've been very blessed because we've had long-term adjuncts that have, that, you know, some of them here 20, 30 years. That, that's really made that program be good. So as if all that weren't enough, then on top of that, 2008, you get your doctorate, yes? And so what was it like to kind of achieve that, that milestone, if you will, kind of that this is the, the highest level, you know, that I can go in terms of my education? What was that like when that finally came to, to fruition? Huge relief, <laughs> because it was a long time coming. I had started... Uh, earlier in the 2000s and then got married and gained some some stepchildren and wanted really to be around for them and their events and the things that they were doing and um, and so it took me a lot longer I went sort of more part-time than I would have but um, it was important to me no one was telling any of us at that time that we had to have doctorates particularly in our area because physical education and athletics and weren't necessarily valued at the same way as maybe other majors were. So, um, and sport management, while everyone was appreciative that we had this great program, we were bringing students in, the, a lot of still misunderstanding on campus about, you know, was it a, a real thing and could you really do, you know, get jobs that paid and things like that. So, you know, it, it was really, you know, as we looked forward, it was necessary for me to get a doctorate. And I was willing to do that. I just needed to find the right program for me so I could still be an athletic trainer because I did this all while I was athletic training. Mm -hmm. So, um, and luckily, you know, having Nate Cook uh, at that time as the assistant was, was really the only way I could do that because I wasn't here on Mondays, essentially. Um, so getting that was, was, you know, more because it was necessary we needed to have another doctor within the sport management program for when the retirements were going to happen. And, um, and I enjoyed the program that I was in. So it, it was, you know, a great experience. It just took me forever to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the relief. <laughs> Hence the relief. Oh, my goodness, yes, absolutely. I can remember when, when I defended my dissertation the next day, when I came in, everyone knew how much angst I was going through. You know, there were there were nurses on our floor at that time, and there were balloons and everything all over the door, and they had they had wine bottles sitting in little bags, and you know, just as a sort of a fun thing that you know, hey, now you can just relax and and um, but but you know, I'm glad that I did it. I it was really a gr it was great for me personally. And I knew that it was necessary for our program. That's awesome. So speaking of, of that idea, when you look back over time, what are you most proud of in terms of how the program has evolved, how sport management has evolved here at York College? I'm really proud that our students are well, so well prepared. Like I feel like even if they don't understand our broad-based program, like they get so much opportunity to in their classes and opportunities that are offered them outside of their classes and through the Sport Business Association and, and all of the things that we purposely do, I feel like they're so much more prepared than they really know until they get out there. And that kind of legacy that lives on because of the kinds of 
faculty members that we have, you know, had us join and for specialties that they have and things like that. Um, like you, Dr. Souter, you know, and, and you, Dr. Mudrick, the, these, these kinds of things um, bring a strength to this program that I think is what allows us to endure and be so successful. And so as I leave it, I know it's in good hands. Well, similar to you know, what was described about you as an athletic trainer, you know, in talking to our students, you know, one theme is absolutely, absolutely prevalent. She truly wants us to succeed. She truly cares about our well-being, and she'll go over and above to make that happen. So these stories of driving students home, mm-hmm. um, you know, sick on your couch. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, it, it it doesn't change. It seems like um, just took a new form. <laughs> absolutely. And so we w- we would assume you wouldn't want that description any other way. Oh, People absolutely. Think about you. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the feather in the cap that I like to take away from here. Well, it's evident. It's absolutely evident. And so, you know, we can't close out without a few questions about some well-deserved retirement plans. So what's what's on tap? What are the plans? New hobbies? Well, yeah, well, my, I have always wanted to do stained glass. And I actually have everything to, to put up the studio, um, but I've just not I've unpacked the things and actually done it. So that's as I see that sort of maybe being some winter kinds of things that I would do. My husband and I want to travel. We just bought a travel trailer, and so we're we're going to do some traveling. We want to see the United States. It's something that um, a lot of people do d- during their career, take that time, and I never took that time to do anything like that. So we're going to do traveling, national parks, and just different areas within the United States and Canada, and maybe throw in some other countries when things aren't so crazy uh, internationally but um, and uh, I love to read so you know I think I'll get more time to to do some just leisure reading and uh, uh, reading is important to me so I the literacy council here in York is is an area where I plan to volunteer and I've done done um, a little bit with them but nothing that I can say is true volunteerism but I've supported them and, and I believe in their mission. So I, I you know, I see myself being busy, probably as probably as busy as I am here, but I hope that, you know, that busyness will also allow my husband and I to be able to, you know, do things that we've always said we wanted to do and, and we've put off for you know, more for me. I mean, my husband has been an absolute rock. I mean, I'm you know, he was he was in my life when I was the athletic trainer, and he would travel with me and sit in Johns Hopkins Cold Stadium while we're playing lacrosse in February, and you know he would go all over, you know, with me to so he could have time to see me from afar. But you know that you know anyone will tell you who works in athletics when you have a spouse or a significant other that that um, that's hard on them. It's really hard on them. So you know I, I feel like many times this is his time. We're going to do a lot of the things that he wants to do, and um, he's a, he's a little bit more of an introverted person, and so he wants to wait until I'm doing it with him for him to do it. So so we'll be able, I, you know I'm looking forward to it. I, you know I know that I've done as much here as I can do, and it's time to move on and and let very capable people continue on with with. You know, just like with athletic training, you know, with athletic training, when I left there, I told Nate, it's your program. And I don't go over there a whole lot. Not, you know, I'll chat with him and things like that, but I don't go over there. That's his program. And it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And that's why I won't come back and teach. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll be really hard to do that. And it isn't that I don't, you know, you know, I will be with you guys all the time. But, yeah. you know, but it's, it's a, that letting go process for me is, has to be like, this is an end of a time, and it, there are other people who can do these things. I did that for 40 years, and it's time to move on. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you, you know, telling us your story. I think I speak for Molly on that, and that mm-hmm. we're honored to have had this conversation with you. Um, it, it has hit me many times, mainly this year, because I think I was in denial until this year, but it has hit me many times where I have thought, oh, this is the last time that I'm asking Sue about this, or it's the last time that we'll do that. 
or oh my goodness next year like wait a minute you have to re-envision a different future because next year Sue's not going to be here with this and and what will that look like and um, I really cannot overstate just how how much of an impact <laughs> you've had on on my own personal and professional development but also just how much I admire the many, many things that you do and the way that you care for people. And so I, I really am not exaggerating when I say all those things and that there have been points this year that um, just the loss has been fully felt and you're not actually even gone yet. So, <laughs> uh, so wait till retirement officially hits here in a few weeks. Um, it's, I'm very happy for you. I'm, I congratulate you wholeheartedly. And yet at the same time, um, you're going to be very sorely missed. And uh, I'm looking forward to us continuing friendship, but you're going to be sorely missed as a colleague day in and day out here as well. well thank you. I Absolutely. appreciate that. All right, folks. Well, with that said, we're going to conclude our May 2022 podcast. Molly, thanks for, for joining us on this. And, and Sue, absolutely thank you for, for being our guest. Thanks for asking me. All right. Take care. In closing, we want to thank Dr. Kleinitz for joining us today. It was an honor to have this conversation with her, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone as dedicated to this institution as her. As was stated numerous times throughout the discussion, both the sport management program and the college as a whole is certainly going to miss her, and we wish her nothing but the best as she moves on to retirement. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk later.